We were out in Northern California uh, seeing family earlier this month. Gas was over $7 a gallon. But it's not just gas, right? In the past year, meats, poultry, fish, eggs, all up 15%. Fruits and vegetables up over 12%, though I think Snack Lab has gone higher. Won't speak to that. Electricity up 12%. And have you tried to buy a used car recently? Maybe a new car. You might want to look at a bike. Airfares shot up 40%, but I don't know if you've tried to fly out of XNA. I think it's a lot higher than that. Now, I won't depress you further, right? The reality is, as we well know, everything seems more expensive, more costly. And friends, when things get costly, what happens? Well, if they stay costly, we start to change our own behavior, right? Fine dining, yeah, you can stick a fork in that. Demand for high-end discretionary items like boats, right? That demand is sinking. We shop less. We look at fewer brand name purchases. But friends, here's my question. What happens when the cost, not just of prices of goods and services rises, but what happens when the cost of being a Christian rises? Do you find your behavior also tends to change? Maybe when the coworker there notices, you know, in your office that you're not posting that pride flag on your desk like the rest of your coworkers. Or maybe when someone finds out that you're pro-life, you know, if you've been on social media past this week, it is a bloodbath out there. Friend, when the cost of being a Christian rises, how do you find yourself responding? Are you tempted to retreat? into your own Christian kind of ghettos? Or do you find yourself making small concessions here and there, little decisions that you make in order to fit in, to be accepted by the culture around you? Right In those seasons when the pressure to conform is high and when the cost of nonconformity is even higher, do you find your behavior changes? Well, friends, these are the kind of questions we're going to be thinking about as we return to our study this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, let me invite you there. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 3 through 7, 1. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, that's okay. We provide them in the seat backs before you. You can find our passage on page 966, page 966. And if you're just joining us, the Apostle Paul, right, as we've seen, he preached, planted, pastored the church there in Corinth for a number of years. But then when he left that church, that church stumbled and it started to drift back into the ways of the world. As we said, the problem isn't there's a church in Corinth, it's what? Yeah, too much of Corinth in the church. At one point, we'll get that in unison, but you got it. That's good. There's too much of Corinth in the church. And so without Zoom, without telephone, what is Paul doing? He's writing letters. He's actually written four letters. Second Corinthians is the fourth of his letters. And they're concerned with calling them back to faithfulness, calling them back to the Lord. And in Second uh, Corinthians, verse 5, though the costs may be high, right? Paul's pleading with them, as we saw a few weeks ago, to be reconciled to God. Right, chapter 5, verse 20. He's speaking to them. They need to be reconciled again in the sense they need to come back to him. They need to return to him. They need to not receive the grace of God in vain. Chapter 6, verse 1. But what is that to look like 
in their own congregation. We pick up in chapter 6, verse 3. Let's read. Paul writes, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live. As punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, at first glance, it may seem like we have two very distinct sections that have no relationship with one another. And if you looked at the sermon card, you would have known initially I was going to preach these in two separate sermons, but with being away for Aaron's mom's funeral, we're combining them here. And Paul, just to, again, put us in perspective and in context, Paul has, remember, he's called the Corinthians to be reconciled to God, which positively means that they're to open their heart towards Paul and towards his message. That's basically what he's saying in chapter 6, 3 to 13. So part of what it looks like for them to be reconciled to God is to open their heart toward Paul and his message. But it also negatively means that they're to separate or they're to draw away from all that would distract them and pull them away from Paul and his message. And that's really what he gets to in 6, 14 to 7, 1. Because Paul recognizes that authentic Christian ministry, it's going to be costly. It's costly for him. It's also going to be costly for the Corinthians. And the temptation, what? In those moments where it gets costly, it's to change behavior, to ease up, to back off, to make peace, to maybe sand down or soften some of those sharp, hard edges. And so in light of that, we're going to be thinking about, in verses 6, 3 to 13, the heart of those who preach the gospel, right, despite those costs, the heart of those who preach the gospel, and then in 6.14 to 7.1, we're going to think about the holiness of those who profess the gospel, 
So that's just going to serve as our two points, that basic breakdown. First, the heart of those who preach the gospel, 6, 3 to 13. And then the holiness of those who profess the gospel, that's 6, 14 to 7, 1. So first, let's think about the heart of those who preach the gospel, the heart of those who preach the gospel. Now, some of you may have been a bit thrown as I jumped in in verse 3. It looks like I've jumped into the text mid-argument. But in many Greek manuscripts and other English translations, actually verse 3 is separate. It starts a new paragraph. So you see that, for example, in the CSB or the NIV. Because Paul really shifts in verse 3 from this call to the Corinthians and the call for them to be reconciled to God and to not receive God's grace in vain. And Paul turns then in order to recount the nature of his own ministry among them. Right, in verse 3, everything turns and becomes very autobiographical for Paul. And I want us to notice three things about Paul's own heart toward the Corinthian church. He's gonna, it's going to be a heart that's, that's faultless, and it's faithful, and it's fatherly. So for you persistent, dedicated note-takers, yes, three sub-points to point one. All right? Faultless, faithful, and fatherly. That's the nature of Paul's heart toward these Corinthians. So first, it's a faultless heart. Paul says in verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. All right, so Paul's abundantly clear. He puts no obstacle, no stumbling block. He puts no cause for offense. For what purpose? So that, he says, that's the purpose, so that no fault may be found with his ministry. So notice Paul's concern, his overriding concern, is not his own reputation, His overriding concern is the gospel's reputation, right? He's seeking to preserve the gospel's reputation, behind that God's own reputation, that above all else. Because Paul understands that nothing damages our Christian witness more than Christians, and especially Christian leaders, pastors, missionaries. Well, their conduct, when it contradicts the very message that they preach, Nothing can undermine the gospel more than that. Right? That's why scandal, that's why failure among Christian leaders, friends, that's why it causes so much harm. And that's why it, it ought to break us when we see it. You know, the elders of a, of a church I'm familiar with, they will get together regularly in their elder meetings and in part of that time, they'll do some accountability and they'll ask some very hard questions of one another But sadly, and you may know this from your own experience, you know, even the best accountability groups can't protect a church from sin. Sadly, people will lie and they'll often go to great extents to hide those lies. Which is why at the end of the time, the lead pastor of that church will often close that time and he'll pray out loud this way. And he'll say, Lord, if anyone is lying, take him home. It's better that we die than disgrace God's name. Now that may sound a bit extreme to you. That may sound a bit over the top. But friends, I would suggest that pastor understands the gravity of what's at stake. Friend, it's not like God himself won't do it. Do we need to remember Nadab and Abihu? Or Korah? Or Achan? Or Ananias and Sapphira? Lord, others who who have profaned God's name. And God won't hesitate 
to take people out when he feels he must. Friends, I wonder if you, Christian, do you here in the room, do you have the same kind of overriding concern for God's own name and for God's own reputation exhibited in your own life? You know, we don't live faultless lives in order to procure God's favor. That's not why we do that. Christ has done that. He lived perfectly. We don't live perfectly in order, again, to merit God's favor. But our Christian lives ought to be one of the gospel's most eloquent advertisements, right? Our life as this eloquent advertisement for the gospel of God. And friend, just ask yourself, can that be said about you? If your life isn't an advertisement, right, would, would non-Christians and other Christians, would they watch and would they be captured by it? Would they be drawn in by it? Would they ask good questions of it? Would they want to learn more or would they quickly tune it out and turn it off? My friend, second, notice that Paul's, Paul's heart and his life, it wasn't, just, it wasn't just faultless, it was also faithful. Right, he continues verse 4, we've seen that epistolary we, that literary device where Paul speaks of himself in really the, uh, the first person plural, and he'll do this throughout the letter, but he's really speaking more autobiographically when he does that. And so he'll commend himself, Paul says. He commends himself in every way. How exactly does Paul commend himself? Right, by his social media followers, by all the invitations to speak at prestigious conferences, by the lucrative publishing deals? Does he commend himself by all his theological degrees, his academic pedigree, right? The people he knows, the company he keeps. Is that what Paul parades out here? Well, no. Now that's what the Corinthians might do, right? They took, we've already seen, great pride and rhetorical prowess of of large crowds and adoring crowds and financial success. We've seen how they boasted in outward appearance, chapter 5, verse 12. They didn't boast with what's in the heart. But notice Paul's commendation here is quite the opposite. Right? If this is Paul's CV, right, his resume, if this is his LinkedIn page, we would read it and think something's gone wrong. Hardly bears the mark of someone that we would consider effective and influential and, and work that's blessed. You know, I shared last Sunday night when we had our evening service that when the staff was out at the Southern Baptist Convention, we, we went to a church in L.A. on Sunday morning. Um, and it was, a, I mean, it was evangelical in name, but I knew it would be a different experience for the staff as one who spent some time in L.A. and knew something about the church. And the, the message was that we are not to believe the lies the world tells about us. And the, the thrust was that God's desire is to promote us in this life. His desire is to bless us. And it's to favor us and to elevate us. And I'm just all using verbs that the pastor used. Friends, messages like that and even songs that we might sing like that, well, they make us feel good. But recognize they utterly fail to make sense of Paul's ministry here. Nor are they actually honest about many of the genuine hardship that, that pastors and gospel workers cross-culturally face. Now, the editors of the ESV put the semicolon there behind, or rather before, the, that, those words great endurance. I actually think it's a little more natural to put them after those words great endurance, because if you do that, what you have is you have these three sets of three, and Paul's going to talk about first, first set of three, suffering in general, right? Afflictions, hardships, calamities. Those are general sufferings. And then he's going to get to three specific sets of, of sufferings that come at the hand of others, 
He'll talk about beatings, talk about imprisonments, talk about riots. And then that third set of three is going to talk about some of the sufferings that come through his own sort of self-imposed discipline. You know, the hard labors that we know with which Paul worked, the sleepless nights. We know from 1 Thessalonians, he was up often late into the night trying to support himself, right, for his ministry. Hunger, sometimes used of fast. And friends, all of that and working through and continuing ministry in the midst of such sufferings, where that's only possible by means of great endurance. That's only great endurance is the basic heading of which all else follows. Because friends, great endurance is what? Faithful cross-cultural ministry, faithful church planting that Paul's given himself to, that's what it takes. It takes endurance. It takes hard work. It's not accomplished in just a few months, even a few years. It's a lifetime of labor. Paul's been at this work for years, even with the Corinthians at this point. You know, according to the uh, BLS, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, one out of every 10 pastors that begins in ministry retires in ministry. Just one of ten. That's not exactly an encouraging stat. And there are probably many reasons for it. I won't get into. Some are understandable. Some would be reasonable. Some would certainly be lamentable. But endurance amidst adversity is the overarching quality of authentic Christian ministry. This kind of endurance amidst adversity. And friends, if, if you're particularly members of UBC, that's one of the reasons why you may know the elders have been thinking for some time about beginning a cross-cultural ministry training program. Because, you know, a few days at CrossCon, or maybe even six or eight weeks in Richmond, that's great. But that can't properly prepare you for the life of this kind of ministry with these kinds of adversities. Now, some would suggest that all you need to do ministry, whether or not it's planning a church and trying to do that overseas and missions, some would suggest all you need, in the words of some, are a burning heart and a Bible, right? A burning heart and a Bible, and you can just get after it. And, you know, that's a great place to start, right? You want a heart that burns for people. You want to work from the scriptures. But, friends, that alone is not sufficient, not for this kind of work, not for what Paul had to give himself to. Training in Bible, in theology, in ecclesiology, right? What is the church? In language, in culture, in worldview, right? That's what made Paul so effective in his work. He was grounded in all of that, right? He could equally debate the prophets in a Jewish synagogue and then walk into a Greek auditorium and go at the philosophers, right? He could, he could do both, and we see him do both in the book of Acts, Right? God didn't work in spite of all that training, but he worked through Paul because of that training and through that training. And, and yet sometimes we think we can do all that Paul does without any of that training. Now, we all can't be like Paul, right? There are very unique things to Paul. And it's worth saying, if you go back to his calling on the Damascus Road, there would be unique sufferings that the Lord said Paul would have to face. How much he would suffer for my sake. Right? Those words always send a chill down my spine. There were some things unique to Paul, but he is yet a model of something we see in Scripture. And if we're to give people the best chance to succeed at ministry, especially cross-culturally, we can be most difficult. Right, That won't come without careful preparation because it's hard work. It's going to take endurance. 
You know, here along with 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 33, we perhaps have the most vivid picture and description of what Paul faced in his gospel work. And again, we see how challenging it can be. We see how challenging it can be, which shouldn't surprise us, right? The suffering servant of Isaiah, the one whom Paul's service to God as a servant of God depicts, right? As we follow him, of course, we should expect to suffer his same fate. So in that sense, Paul's sufferings here, they're not just some tedious detour on the course of his life, but these sufferings are in fact the main highway through which Paul's message would be proclaimed. And if you want a fun exercise, later this afternoon, look at the Beatitudes and look at the promises of the Beatitudes and see how you can overlap them on many of these sufferings that Paul faced. There's promises and blessings that come from the one who perseveres. But that's for you. You get to do that work yourself. So this is just an encouragement. Uh, I would suggest to us that we need to be faithfully in prayer for the supportive workers of this church. So I love how Sam prayed for the Tylers out in Thailand. We want to be praying faithfully. You know, if you're a member of UBC, we've got a church directory. In that directory, we break out supportive workers. Miles Young, if you know what he's been through the last two weeks, he needs our prayer. And Lord willing, he'll be here soon. and We'll be able to meet with him and pray more with him. Elders were meeting with another couple this past Wednesday night, right? in a difficult place, ministering in a hard place where it's lonely and challenging and they don't just need our prayer as elders and care, they need this whole congregation's prayers to help sustain them in the ministry. Now Paul's gonna go on and talk about purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. All in verse six, that speaks to the manner in which Paul carried about his work, right? There's no deception, no, no deceit, no tricks of the trade that Paul, that Paul plays in. He speaks truthfully, verse seven, in the midst of all these paradoxes, we get verse 8 to 10 of the Christian life, right? Honor and dishonor, slander and praise, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Again, we're seeing the costliness of ministry. And, you know, as, we, as you read through all these hardships, you don't really get the sense that Paul had much concern about kind of me time. You don't get the sense that Paul was thinking about, you know, self-care. That wasn't exactly a pressing concern of his. You know, when it comes to service, so often we ask, at least internally, you know, what's in it for me? How might I benefit from this? You don't get the sense that's Paul's own mentality. He's not looking for how he can benefit from it. He understands, Paul does, that the one who has God and has everything else has no more than the one who has God. And friends, would it be that we understood that better ourselves? But third, his heart was fatherly. Verse 11, we see how candidly and lovingly Paul speaks, right? When he he says he's spoken freely, right? He's saying he's opened up his heart wide to them. He's enlarged it to them. He's not callous or closed, right? The problem between the church in Corinth and Paul is not Paul. It's not his own affections. He says it's their affections. They've actually closed their heart to him, verse 12. So when he says, verse 13, in return I speak as to children, that's not derogatory. He's not saying, listen, you're being childish, you're being immature, grow up, act like an adult. Right? That's not actually, he's not trying to belittle them there. There's an implied my, as in he's saying, I speak as to my children. He's speaking with affection 
with care, with longing. There's warmth as he addresses them as their spiritual father in the faith. You can look back at 1 Corinthians 4 for more. But just notice something in the midst of all the hardships. You remember the third letter was all because there was the visit where he comes to them and he appeals to them and he leans on them and they basically run him out and no one comes to his defense. And we might be tempted to write off that congregation, but Paul's own heart and affection remains toward them. He leans into them. So just notice that our ability, as we see in Paul, our ability to love another is not finally dependent on how they've treated us. Our ability to love, as much as we might feel like it, it's not finally dependent on how someone has treated us, but on how we've been treated by God. That's what makes the difference. right? Paul can love the Corinthians in the way that he's loved them because he knows how he's been loved by Christ. So friend, if you're struggling to love a difficult person right now, especially if you're a Christian, is that because you've forgotten yourself? What it's like for you have been loved by Christ and the way Christ has loved you, the way he forbears with you, the way he overlooks your faults and offenses, the way he continues to press in toward you and to be gracious to you. Right? Notice that though Paul has wronged no one, He's not above even making that first move toward reconciliation. Who's initiating here? It's Paul. He's the one writing. He's the one leaning into them. Friends, that is a genuine mark of Christian humility and maturity. That you take the initiative and reconciliation regardless of whether or not you are the one who's wronged. Paul's the wronged party. But that doesn't stop him from initiating and reconciliation. Because that's what mature Christians do. It's the proud who tend to sit back and keep score. It's the proud who think, well, you know what? They sinned, and it's solely on them to fix this. It's the proud who tend to fold their arms and turn their backs and dig in their heels and quietly demand their rights. It's the proud who only think in the categories of fairness, of what's deserved, Friends, Paul doesn't love them that way because he understands he hasn't been loved that way. How might that change the way in which you love today, this week, and some of the hardest relationships in your life? You know, if you've come here and you're a non-Christian, the wonderful news is that God actually loves like this. God loves like no one on planet Earth ever loves. All of us hit a breaking point. And God, in his great and tremendous love, despite our sin and despite our rebellion, despite how aggressive sometimes we get in our anger and frustration toward God, the wonderful news of the gospel is that God met that by sending his son, by living the life that we chose not to live, by dying on a cross and doing so as a substitute for sinners. Jesus' perfect life in exchange for our deeply flawed and sinful life. And then he bears our sins and sorrows on the cross, lays them into the grave, is resurrected from the grave as proof that God accepted that sacrifice. Now he reigns at the right hand of the Father so that all of those who want to be loved like that, who want to be reconciled to God like these Corinthians, some of them, it seems, need to be reconciled, maybe even for the first time. If you need that for the first time, 
That's how God loves. And you can experience that love in Christ by repenting of your sin and turning to him and trusting in him. And friend, I guarantee you, you do that and you will love in ways that you haven't been able to love and you will know a love that you've never experienced. Well, if these Corinthians are going to be reconciled to God, then we've seen they've got to positively open their heart toward Paul. But it also means negatively they've got to do something. They've got to separate. They've got to, to walk away from all that would draw them away from Paul and his own message. And that gets us to the next verses, 6.14 through 7.1. So we've thought about the heart of those who preach the gospel. Now we've got to think about the holiness of those who profess that gospel. So we're moving on to the second point, the holiness of those who profess the gospel. And what we have in 6.14 to 7.1, just so you kind of get a sense of these verses, is there's this main command in 6.14, do not be unequally yoked. And then to support that main command, Paul gives five rhetorical questions, which the obvious answer is, is no, and that's clear as we read. But then that's followed by this slew of Old Testament commands and promises in verses 16 to 18. And that looks like in our Bible it's just one long Old Testament quotation. Friends, that's actually six quotations, and he merges them together, and it is more nuanced and more detailed than I have time to delve into this morning. It's glorious, it's good stuff in there, but it's thick. And then he wraps that up in verse 1 of chapter 7 with an inference, and he says, because we have all these great promises, let us cleanse ourselves, he says, let us bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And in that, 7-1, he's really just restating in a different way that command to, to not be unequally yoked, right, with unbelievers. He's just restating in 7-1 what he says in 6-14. And so actually everything builds off that command in 6-14. Do not be unequally yoked. Now listen, you guys know I'm not a farmer. I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't spend any time thinking about farms, caring about farms. I think the first farm I went to was when we were married and we went to Charlottesville. And I don't know, my wife had seen a documentary and I'm like, yeah, we'll go to a farm. I was in maybe my 30s. First time I've been to a farm. So I read a verse like this, do not be unequally yoked. I have no idea what it means. They're talking about egg yolk, right? I don't know. Um, I do remember the first time I heard it, I was a new Christian, I was a teenager, and I was in a, basically a youth group, and the Bible teacher said, don't be unequally yoked, as in don't date non-Christians. And I'm like, that doesn't help me at all. No idea what that means. No idea. Not helpful. But nonetheless, Deuteronomy 22.10 reads, you shall not plow with an ox and with a donkey together, for the ox due to its sheer strength and size would what does it do? It overpowers, right? It overpowers the, the weaker animal, and it's going to leave the field, right, unevenly plowed, or it's going to cause even worse damage if you put two distinct different animals that are going to pull in different directions, perhaps, or at least with different power. And so Paul's grabbing this image of two animals being unequally yoked, and he's grabbing this image and he's using it not technically, not legally, but more metaphorically, as in don't harness together what doesn't belong together, what can't work together. Don't harness together things that won't pull in the same direction. So since I'm not a farmer, some of you, you've probably played that game tug of war. And you know what it's like. You get on opposing sides and you pull on a rope. Some of you may not know that was an Olympic sport until 1920. 
still under the IOC every four years. Not Olympic sport, they still have a competition. You can watch it at any rate, that's not the point. Point is, tug of war, only one side is victorious. Both pull, but are only until one side is left standing and the other side usually has their face in the dirt. And Paul's saying, yeah, it's kind of like that when you yoke a believer to an unbeliever. It won't end well. It can't end well. And so we kind of get the image, but what does it refer to more specifically? Who's Paul referencing when he says an unbeliever? Because some will say what Paul's referencing are actually unbelievers in the church. Some think Paul's referring to unbelievers in the church. Because, you know, in context, nothing has prepared us for dating relationships. I mean, that would seem out of left field. Like, all of a sudden, Paul, the youth pastor, shows up. Like, where'd this sermon come from? Did it just get stuck in? You know, it's not expecting it. But we know that from context, right, Paul has been fighting for the legitimacy of his own apostolic ministry. We do know there are false teachers there in Corinth trying to lead others astray. And Paul does employ temple language there in verse 16, right, where the temple of the living God. And, and he, that is in reference there to the local church. And so in that reading that these unbelievers are actually sort of false teachers there in Corinth. In that reading, Paul is commanding the Corinthians to separate from such false teachers in the church, to not be linked with them, not be yoked with them, because they're going to pull them in a different and destructive direction. Now that's, if you have an ESV study Bible, that's how the ESV study notes will take it. And that might be exactly what Paul's getting at. I think one challenge, though, to that reading is that whenever Paul uses the term unbeliever in First and Second Corinthians, he regularly, consistently, almost exclusively uses it of unbelieving outsiders, those outside the church, not in the church, but outside the church. And all these Old Testament verses that he cites, well, they, they tend to deal with the temple and they deal with worship, yes, but in the context of the surrounding nations, that God's people would be separate from them, set apart, distinct from the world about them. And then there's also this, a lot of overlapping language here between 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through, verse, uh, through chapter 10. So a lot of language that parallels chapter 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians that deals with idols and food offered to idols in temples. You know, and if we're talking about church discipline, as some argue, you know, the language of 1 Corinthians 5 is, is putting one out of their midst. It's not the language of going out from their midst, like we see more in 6.17. In other words, the command here seems to be the Corinthians separate themselves from something, not separate another from them. And if he was talking about discipline, he was really clear in 1 Corinthians 5. I think he could be clear here. So I think the Bible teaches discipline in churches. I don't think that's personally what Paul's referencing in this case. Maybe right doctrine, wrong text. I think... Paul is teaching a general principle that Christians must not form the kind of close attachments, the kind of close bonds with the world that will lead them to compromise their faith. I think that's the general principle Paul's getting at, that Christians not, must not form the kind of close bonds or attachments with the world that will lead them to compromise their faith. Which makes sense given what we know so far of the church in Corinth. 
Right? We know, again, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, many Corinthians were wrestling with food offered up to idols and going to such temples and participating in some of those practices. You know, and friend, that's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to understand how the Corinthians can be so tied up in all this temple worship. Because what is church for many of us? For many in America, church is what? Something you do maybe 60 to 90 minutes on a Sunday. That's it. So when we talk about church and state, like in the political realm, it's actually in our own practical lives, sadly, it's, it's very clear as well. And yet that's not true in Corinth. In the Corinth of Paul's day, right, the sacred and the secular, all that was inextricably linked. Temples were an integral part of Roman society. Not just religiously, but socially, civically, economically, familially. So lots of family ceremonies, weddings, funerals, rites of passage, those would be conducted often in temples. Temples were actually a great place to throw a private dinner party. Now, most of you aren't thinking about the fellowship hall for your dinner party on Saturday, and I get it. But in a temple, you'd have an animal sacrificed maybe in one corner of that temple complex, nice fresh food that on another side you could turn into a five-star meal. And that's what would often happen, a great place to do hospitality. Local trade guilds would often gather and meet in temples. Civic magistrates would conduct business in temples. Local city festivals were held in and around temples. Temples were places to see and be seen. They were just part and parcel of normal Christian life. And you couldn't walk through Corinth without stumbling into a temple or falling over a shrine to one. And the Corinthians loved their gods. Keep in mind, all the Greco-Roman gods, none of them required exclusive worship. Right? You had this buffet line of deities, choose whatever you would like. The more gods, the merrier, so long as those gods served your need. And so I think it's more likely that what we have in Corinth is that some are still struggling to make a clean break from that world. They're buckling under the social pressure to conform Right, the cost personally, financially, again, civically, that is, that is of not frequenting temples, that cost is high. And so perhaps, you know, they're taking this enlightened view of Christian freedom, right? Everything is permissible, something Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians. And they're thinking, you know what, I can go to the temples, I can go through those motions, I can be a part of all that, I don't have to walk away from it, and I can still hold Christ, and I can do it together. And Paul's calling them out. And he's warning them. He's saying, you know what? No, God demands exclusive worship. You can't put God on his shelf alongside other gods. He won't have it. Right? No fellowship, as Paul says, between righteousness and lawlessness, between light and darkness, between the temple of God and idols. So to partner with such unbelievers, I think Paul is saying, Right, do that, keep being a part of all those temple worship and sacrifices and everything that happens as a part of it. Continue to be a part of that and you will slowly and subtly be led astray. And not only that, you're going to lead others astray. That's the kind of yoked, the yoke that they need to break of that life. So harness yourself, Paul's saying, to unbelievers like this. He's saying, and you're going to soon find yourself plowing Satan's fields. So what does that, friends, mean for us today? Because we don't have temple worship and our, our own lives, civically, economically, are not grounded around temple worship. 
Well, I don't think this means we have to entirely withdraw from the world. Like only do business with Christians. Do they still do that shepherd's guide for Christian businesses? Those are fine things, but I don't think we have to just go to the shepherd's guide if we need a plumber. Or only live in Christian neighborhoods. Or only frequent Christian restaurants. Or only play on Christian sports teams. Upward or whatever it might be, right? Only go to Christian schools. Those are fine things to do. But friends, that would have been impossible in Corinth. That would be impossible in most every part of the world. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. He's not calling us to retreat into our own sort of colonies of Christian ghettos. No, 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul's really clear. Yet we can't escape the world. Like, we're in it. We shouldn't be of it, but yeah, we're in it. He assumes, Paul does, that we're going to be dining in the homes of unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 10, 27. And when a Christian's married to a non-Christian, maybe they get saved. Paul doesn't say separate, divorce, right, walk away. He doesn't say that, 1 Corinthians 7. So that's why I actually like the ESVs, what I initially found somewhat awkward translation, unequally yoked. Some other modern translations try and smooth it. And one reads like this, stay away from people who are not followers of the Lord. Good luck. I don't think that's what Paul means. Complete withdrawal is not what he's advocating. But he is warning us from establishing those kind of close attachments that will lead us to compromise our faith. So by way of application, though I don't think this is Paul's direct point. I don't think this is what he's getting at. He's not dealing with the dating culture. I do think it's an appropriate application of this principle that Christians shouldn't date non-Christians. I think it's an appropriate application, right? We're only to marry in the Lord, as Paul says, right? Some like, oh, but it's only one date. Oh, they're a seeker. Like, I think if we date, I think I can get them to Jesus, right? That's what we say to make ourselves feel better. It always ends in a mess. It just regularly does. You know, if you're a student in the room this morning, you know, maybe a passage like this calls you to reflect very carefully on the kind of associations and friendships you have, the kind of company you keep. There may be certain homes, certain parties, certain events, maybe certain teams and activities that you find, yeah, you're going to have to pull away from that because it is drawing you unhelpfully into the world and leading you away from Christ. And different consciences will have to walk through that, right, with parental help, right, differently than others. If you're a, uh, a college student, Right, I know in university, I was encouraged as a college student to participate in interfaith worship services. You know, as a college student, you may face that. Or you may face a similar challenge with the kind of Greek culture. I think an application might be, yeah, we're going to have to step away from those things. Certainly interfaith worship services. We don't want to confuse a situation like that. Right? Did Jesus dine with tax collectors and sinners? Yes. Did he worship in their shrines? No. Right? We shouldn't gather in an interfaith service with Muslims and Buddhists and the rest, and pretend like we're worshiping the same God. We're not. We shouldn't pretend like we are. You know, even think uh, even more maybe practically in a time like this, think of Pride Month. Do I think it's wrong to work for a company that promotes LGBTQ plus policies? No, I don't think it's wrong. I think all of you who work for Walmart, for example, or Disney, or just about every other these days, Fortune 500 company, I don't think it means you have to leave. But while that company or that establishment may boast a pride sticker on their door or have the rainbow flag right on their website, that doesn't mean you should. doesn't mean you should put it on your shirt or 
on your own social media accounts. You know, and friends, that's more costly by the day. So some of you will know that the Tampa, Tampa Bay Rays, in honor of Pride Month, that MLB team, they had pride patch on the uniforms of all the players. And yet five players chose not to have that patch. They opted out. And if you know what happened, they were taken to the woodshed for not wearing that patch. I have a friend in federal government who wouldn't put a pride flag on his desk. And he wouldn't do it along with the coworkers who were doing it. And he's not worried about getting fired. He said, basically, Brad, federal government can't fire people, which is a different problem altogether. But he's not worried about being fired. But they've made his job really hard. They've made advancement very difficult. They've made transfers appear very more likely as a consequence of him not following and bowing. You know, I think for missionaries, this is implications, right, for the whole insider movement. The notion that one can claim to be a Christian without having to shed any of their previous religious identity, any of their cultural practices. Paul seems to say otherwise, right? You can't continue to worship Christ and serve the house of Belial. You can't do that. You can't do both. You have to turn away, 1 Thessalonians 1, from idols into the living and true God, right? Separate yourself. That's what he's doing by drawing there in verse 17, right? Separating themselves from others when necessary. Part of what repentance looked like, part of what baptism signifies, a clean break from the world and from your former life. That's what marks genuine Christians. Point being, right, I could keep going, but those are some of the costs, that the Corinthians felt, that perhaps we're feeling, those costs are rising, and we're going to be faced with tough decisions as Christians and in our churches, because all of us, despite what we might say, we all value cultural esteem. None of us in here says, you know what, I want to be culturally irrelevant. Well, that's not what we say. And so in the name of relevancy, sometimes in the name of reaching outsiders, of gaining an audience and, and seeing more people come to Christ, sometimes churches capitulate. They begin to surrender their own biblical convictions. The cost of maintaining those convictions has just become too high. And friends, that is happening all around us. You know, as a church, one of the questions we have to ask is, are we prepared to maintain our own biblical convictions as the cultural tides continue to press harder and faster against us. You know, as individuals, a good question to ask if you're a Christian is where are you tempted to make peace with the world? Where are you tempted to make these kind of unholy alliances with the world? You know, James reminds us, James 1.27, that pure and undefiled religion is, yes, it's to keep and to watch over widows and orphans in their distress, but it's also what it is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, and here's the thing. A lot of us say we want intimacy with God. We want fellowship with God. We want communion with God. We say we want to feel close to God. Notice, how does Paul say that happens, though? By pursuing holiness. If we want God's dwelling among us, 
and want him to walk with us, verse 16. If we want intimacy, then recognize the kind of prerequisite to this intimacy is that we separate ourselves from idolatry, verse 17, and every defilement of the body, chapter 7, verse 1. Closeness is found in the pursuit of holiness. That's where close communion with God comes. And friend, that is an important reminder because if you feel like the Lord is distant from you, detached, might that be because you stopped somewhere along the way of pursuing holiness? It's why we need the church. Fascinating, verse 16, how Paul says, we, right? For we, that we is emphatic, leads the sentence, are the temple of the living God. And who's the we? Well, it's the Corinthian church is what Paul's referencing. Old Testament Israel was never called the temple, but Paul will call the church the temple because the spirit uniquely resides within believers in special and distinct ways. You know, last week Mike warned us that our God is often too small. Friends, similarly, our vision of the church, our understanding of the church, the importance of the church in the Christian life, friends, that often is too small. You know, it's the gathering in local churches where God promises to uniquely meet with his people, to dwell with his people, to bless his people, to speak with his people through his word, to govern them through that same word and through godly leaders, to fellowship with them through the Spirit and through the ordinances as we're about to partake and through conversations and the blessings of others. Friends, it's why it's dangerous to take yourself out of that temple, out of that community, out of the very institution God designed to bless you and to keep you, to uphold you, and to strengthen you. That's the church. That's what God gave us. It's beautiful. We need one another, which means, even in our gathering, we need to fight against the temptation to make this time a kind of conspiracy of cordiality. What I mean is when the, when the church just becomes suffocatingly superficial, after the service, what do we talk about? The weather, our week, sports. Not the stuff that truly matters. Not the stuff that finally matters. Now, I, I, you can talk about those things. But that's all we talk about? When we talk about everything except that which matters? That's not healthy. So friend, use this time after church. Use this time as you go back in your homes. Hopefully having other people in your homes. Caring for them. Meeting with them. Lord, be, be honest with one another about where you are tempted to make peace with the world, to partner with it, where you need the help of others to help hold you accountable in this, that you may bring holiness to completion and the fear of God. All right, is inflation rising for the Christian? It is. Are the costs of following Christ becoming more acute and more painful for many of us? They are. And they were for Paul, right? We just got to consider his own hardships. Authentic Christian ministry is costly, which is why we're reminded not to be unequally yoked. We're to persist in that pursuit of holiness. And yet as we persist in that pursuit of holiness, the Bible would at the same time call us to remember another yoke. It would call us to rest in the one who says to us, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.'"